Welcome to our new mini-series, Celebrating 70. How did we get here? A, uh, a look at six events from Israeli history. You could easily pick many, many more events. The point was not to say that the six that I picked uh, that were listed on the flyer are somehow you know, the biggest and most important. They're just six that I felt lent themselves to interesting conversation. Uh, and uh, who knows? Next year we can do a Celebrating 71. There's nothing to, to stop us from doing that. Um, I, I uh, thank everybody for, for coming on time. Um, we have a lot to talk about. We tend to use the full hour. Um, I want to thank Betty for uh, her impromptu work on registration. Um, please note, um, I think all the names, I mean, certainly all the names who are on the registration list, and I think all the ones I see added on the uh, on the envelope here, um, I think I have all of your email addresses. If, you're, yeah, if you already signed up and you haven't been getting the emails about the class, let me know, please. I want to make sure that I have you there because I like to send out the source sheets in advance and because I do record audio and post it online. And if you're on the list, then you'll get a link to the audio. And, uh, and therefore, you can catch any that you may miss. Um, I'm going to ask people to please silence their cell phones. Um, they're on the table by the, by the hot water. Sorry. Um, I am likely going to speak to Pearl about changing the room setup so that everybody can have a table in front of them. Um, although I really do like it much more when we can all see each other, but we, we just don't have enough space, so, which is a good problem on the whole. I like that problem, but it is something we need to cope with. Um, I do have one note regarding week six. Uh, for those who expect to be in week six, and I'm going to send an email out, uh, a follow-up email later, and I'll ask the question there, but I would, it, it would help me a lot if I could switch the time 15 minutes earlier for week six to make it 9.45 to 10.45 because of a conflict with another program. The, um, whatever is week six of our class. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll email out the question as well. If, if, I, if I see that it causes a problem for a lot of people, then I, then I won't do it. But, um, but, uh, but I, I ran into a conflict with another program, and I'd like to try to diffuse it. Okay. Um, I would also like to dedicate the learning today uh, in memory of the victims from, the, uh, from what happened on, uh, on Monday, as well as for Rafua Shlema, speedy recovery for, for those who are injured uh, and for their families. What are we trying to accomplish with, these ser- with this series? From my perspective, um, I want to learn about critical moments in Israeli history. Um, there are some things that we're going to bring up which are very well known. Uh, and others on our list, which I, I think it's safe to say people don't know a whole lot about. So an example of that would be what we're going to do this week, uh, Israel's Nuclear Energy Commission, or, you know, the textile plant, uh, as, it's, uh, as it's also known. Um, you know, I think that, that while we may be aware that Israel has a nuclear program and even nuclear weapons, the genesis of it is fascinating in terms of how it came to be and why it came to be. Um, so that's one piece of it. But also, I tried to pick events in Israeli history which touch on interesting issues of Jewish ethics and law so that the discussion is really a two-tiered discussion. Part of it is historic, historical, and part of it is Jewish in terms of what we have to say about these things um, as Jews. So today we're going to talk Israel and nuclear weapons. And I gave you a, uh, a, a source, and the first source on your sheet. This is a translation of a letter from David Ben-Gurion to a fellow by the name of Ehud Avriel. Ehud Avriel was working for the Jewish Agency in Europe. You see the date, April 1948, so it's a month before the founding of the State of Israel. This is quoted in a Hebrew book called Ben-Gurion Vea Intellectualiim. Because that's what we do in Hebrew if we don't have a word. <laughs> or even if we do have a word, that's okay. We can still take an English word, add an Ali at the end, and lo and behold, now we have a Hebrew word. So, yes, Ben-Gurion and the intellectuals. And you see what Ben-Gurion, what, what, um, what Michael Karen, the author, says. Ben-Gurion issued instructions to seek out East European Jewish scientists who could, quote, either increase the capacity to kill large numbers of people, or the opposite, 
to cure large numbers of people. Both things are important. Now, in context, he's not talking nuclear weapons. In context, you're not going to like this any better. He's talking biological weapons. That's what he's referring to. Eventually, he came to refer to nuclear weapons as well. And so my question to you, to start us off here, is, was the move into weapons of mass destruction consistent with Jewish ethics? Susan. So if you want to become biblical in your discussion, and you go back to the instructions given to the Jews when they enter the land, God says to Moses, I'm not giving you this land because you're wonderful. It's Deuteronomy chapter 9. He says, I'm not giving you this land because you're wonderful. I'm giving you this land because the Canaanites who are living there have built up such horrible, abusive societies as demonstrated throughout the biblical text, particularly in the book of Genesis. You think of the city of Sodom, the city of Shechem, the stories um, with Canaan. The, um, no, we're not on Amalek yet. That's a separate point. You're right, but hold up for one second. The, um, but the, God says these people have built societies that are so awful, they have to be eliminated. And you are my tool for doing so. So there is an idea, going back to the beginning, of potentially harming large groups of people, or convincing them that maybe they should, in fact, change, because that's part of the imperative, is for them to accept the seven Noahide laws. The um, Ruhamah points out, there's another example, the war against Amalek, Amalek being the first enemy of the Jews, the first one to come up and attack us. However, I would argue that those can't really be used as precedent for Ben-Gurion. Because those are specifically, first of all, from a historical perspective, those are long gone by the time you get to the 20th century. So just from a historical perspective, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The, um, but there are no Amalekim. No you don't have actual Amalekim anymore. I think you're referring to the story of Shaul, when he doesn't kill all the Alive. But it doesn't help you. You're still, you're right, Dan. The, um, but, it, but Amalek is long gone. In other words, there is no one you could identify as a member of the tribe of Amalek. And more to the point, Ben-Gurion is not interested. Don't they David Ben-Gurion, Ben-Gurion is not interested in a war against the Canaanite nations. Ben-Gurion is not interested in Judaizing, if you will, the, um, and, and getting rid of everybody else. And he certainly doesn't see any war he's fighting. He never, and, and Ben-Gurion is a very Tanakh-oriented person. He does not frame his efforts in that, in that, in that context. I don't think that's what he's trying to do. Muhammad, you were going to say? Uh, don't they say that Amalek was from Zerah, uh, Amal was from Zerah Amalek? So, so it's not Amalek, Amalek, but the Tzaytzaim. No, Haman is actually a descendant. That's the, the idea of the Megillah. He's identified as Agagi, and Agag is Melech Amalek. Agag is the king of Amalek. But you still, that still doesn't take you to this point. I, I, think, I think Ben Gurion is not looking at this as an extension of those words. I think he has something else in mind. So again, I throw open the question: Where does this fit into Jewish ethics for him to, for Ben Gurion to say to Ehud Avriel, "Bring me scientists who can kill or cure large numbers of people"? I think the key is to not focus on the word "kill," but to focus on the two halves of the sentence, and then you start to understand where he's going and why he's doing what he's doing. Part, part defensive. Part defensive, for sure. And he's going to be surrounded by enemies. He's going to be surrounded by enemies, and he knows it. Enemies. Right? It's well established that they're going to be facing enemies. Yeah. And gathering of the exiles. What do you mean? Mm. So part of it may just be, let's take advantage of the brain power that's out there, and we're going to actually see that explicitly in a Ben-Gurion quote regarding the development of nuclear weapons in just a little bit. If you want to peek ahead at number three, you'll see it there. They, um, so you, you definitely will see that. For anyone who came in and didn't get a sheet, there's still some there on the table by the hot water. The, um, so that, that is certainly a factor, but there's something else going on, and it's really important to understand how it fits into Jewish ethics overall. So let's go back and do some history. The, uh, 1952 
was when Ben-Gurion officially initiated Israel's nuclear program. But his writings go back long before that, and his belief that Israeli technology could make up for what we lacked in size and resources against our, against our enemies. He wrote the following in 1948. And it's what you see in number two. The essay is called, With What Will We Face the Future? The translation is not my own. It's from a historian named Avner, Avner Kohn. Avner Kohn wrote what may be considered the definitive work on Israel's attempt to get or work to get the nuclear uh, capabilities back in the day. Um, it's a very well-reviewed book. So Avner Kohn does this translation. He says, We are inferior to other people in our numbers dispersion, and the characteristics of our political life. <laughs> That's an understatement. Um, but no other people is superior to us in its intellectual prowess. Until now, we have disseminated our intellectual capital in foreign lands and helped many nations in the great scientific achievements of the 19th and 20th centuries. There is no reason why the genius of science would not blossom and flourish in this native land. You see the sentiment, which goes back to what you had said before, the, um, about, you know, let's do this here, and this is going to even the odds. We have brain power. Now, you may feel a little bit uncomfortable, I feel a little bit uncomfortable, um, reading a text in which a Jewish leader says outright, yeah, I think we're smarter than everybody else, and that's what's going to help us. Um, for me, that's a little bit uncomfortable. I actually, I was at, I was at someone's Shabbat table Friday night, and they said they had seen a documentary. I don't know if anyone here saw this. What's with the Jews? Something. Yes. So, um, so apparently, according to them, anyway, the uh, the person who uh, who's speaking ends up concluding is just that we're the chosen people, and that's why we uh, and and that's where it comes from. But on the other side, by the way, how about it? The um, uh, is that was that the conclusion? No. Oh, well, that was what they thought the conclusion was. I love documentaries. Yeah. Sorry, you were going to say? Historically, we've been the other. Mm-hmm. We've been used by countries where we had economic value and we the property of the crown. As long as we were the good for the property of the crown, effective, we're not to throw under the bus. So if you look at what's happening today with all the cyber stuff, why are countries playing around with Israel? Could it be because we've got something useful in terms of terrorism? Mm-hmm. Same story all over again. Right, certainly, the approach to Jews historically, frankly, the approach to many nations, not just us, but certainly the approach to Jews has been utilitarian. The, uh, you know, when Turkey welcomes us in after we're expelled from the Iberian Peninsula, it's not because the Sultan loves Jews. You know, that's not that's not the secret. When Oppenheimer is able to do well in Amsterdam, it's not it's not because they love Jews. It's because they love what the Jews were able to do, and that is in fact one of the reasons why we've come to thrive in this regard. So I think that I think that's an important point. Yeah. us confidence and to make up for the way others would degrade us. 
the, uh, you, know, you look for ways to build yourself up, which spills over at certain times into applying pejoratives to, to others. In other words, in our vision of ourselves and how the world works, we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. And I worry about how data like this influences our narrative and our way of looking at the world. And I just, to me, it's an uncomfortable thing to, to see, you know, to, to see a statement like it. Um, but that's neither here nor there, really. Let me come back to what Ben-Gurion is trying to do. Um, Ben-Gurion believes that he needs to gather intellectuals to protect the state of Israel. And here's the quote that I was referring you to before, number three. What Einstein, Oppenheimer, and Teller, the three of them are Jews, made for the United States, could also be done by scientists in Israel for their own people. That's what he says in 56, four years after he's established the, uh, the nuclear program. So, yeah. We have a disproportionate amount of Nobel Prize winners. Yes. It's, it's really because the Swedes love Jews. That's why. The Nobel Committee is biased. They, um... Sorry. Shh. Ruth. Yeah. over the years, that's a, bit, that's a, that's a major point, um, but focusing on this now, so Ben Gurion, we see a pattern here in his writing, you see it in the first, second, and third source, um, Ben Gurion believes that there is a need for Jews to develop something intellectually which will serve to protect us and balance us in our dealings with the rest of the world. So now I ask you the question, what is it that's driving Ben-Gurion? What is it that's motivating him in this? It's not, it's not a hard thing. Like This isn't uh, nuclear science. So see. Exactly. Dahlia says it right there. It's the Holocaust. It's 1952 when he creates the Nuclear Energy Commission, but he's been thinking about this in the 30s and 40s. Right? This is about fear. Fundamentally, It's fear that instead of it being the Germans this time, it will be the Arabs this time. You know, an aide once described Ben-Gurion coming out of his bedroom one morning and looking very tired and saying, I couldn't sleep all night, not even for a second. I had one fear in my heart, a combined attack by all Arab armies. That was what he was living in fear of. And you see him say it. In source number four, this is dated June 27, 1963. This is when Ben-Gurion had resigned. He had resigned, which we're going to come back to his resignation in a little bit. But um, 11 days after he announced that he was resigning as prime minister, he goes to Rafael, which is Israel's armaments development authority, and he addresses the employees there. He never mentions nuclear weapons explicitly, but listen to what he says. I do not know of any other nation whose neighbors declare that they wish to terminate it, and not only declare, but prepare for it by all means available to them. We must have no illusions that what is declared every day in Cairo, Damascus, Iraq, are just words. This is the thought that guides the Arab leaders. Our numbers are small. And there is no chance that we could compare ourselves with America's 180 million or with any Arab neighboring state. There is one thing, however, in which we are not inferior to any other people in the world. This is the Jewish brain. And science, if a layperson like myself could say, starts from the brain. And the Jewish brain does not disappoint. Jewish science does not disappoint. I am confident, based not only on what I heard today, that our science can provide us with the weapons that are needed to deter our enemies from waging war against us. I am confident that science is able to provide us with the weapon that will secure the peace and deter our enemies. It's amazing. He's like a prophet. I don't know. It looks like, no, because by us, even Bilam said, I'm Lebadan Yes. Because we have people that they were, uh, but still, you know, 
it looks like really the brain and if the Kadosh Baruch Hu is with us, we are not Levadat. That it's really a, a question of, by us, education. And with education, we can get everywhere. And, and it was always it's certainly on our side. I mean, we're not the only ones to prize education. You could, I mean, there's so much to say about about this. Maybe at some point we should have a class on what sets Jews apart and uh, and not record it. The, uh, but in terms of the, um, but in terms of what he's saying here, what has been motivating Ben Gurion all along is fear. It is not the war to get rid of the Canaanite nations. It's not, I want to fight a war against Amalek and destroy the enemies of the Jews. He's looking for deterrent. He wants everybody to know that if they attack us, they're going to get hit. And by the way, this came up after Ben-Gurion's leadership in 1973. During the Yom Kippur War, there were very serious conversations involving Moshe Dayan and the other leaders of the time I think Oldemir must have been involved in the conversation also, but I've seen the Diane quotes, um, about using nuclear weapons potentially, because they thought this was it. They thought it was, it was all over, and there was a readiness to say, let's use nuclear weapons as a, um, you know, as a means of either balancing, scaring, however you want to look at it. Um, it didn't happen, obviously, in the end. But this was what motivated the drive to create this Nuclear Energy Commission. Here's something fascinating. I haven't seen anybody comment on it, but I think it has to be so. The date in 1952, when Ben-Gurion actually officially created the Nuclear Energy Commission, was June 13th. June 13th, 1952, on our Jewish calendar, is the 20th day of the month of Sivan. Anyone know what the 20th day of Sivan was? Sorry? No. No, no, no. Not to mention this was 1952. There was no Yerushalayim. After. After Shavuot. 20th day of Sivan was a very well-known date on the Jewish calendar in Europe pre-war. Post-war in North America, it has become much less known. But I would bet anything that Ben-Gurion knew exactly what the 20th day of Sivan was. 20th day of Sivan was a fast day. Not a biblical fast day, not an old fast day. It was created in 1649, if that rings a bell. 1648, 1649, on the Jewish calendar, are known as Tach Vetat, the year Tach Vetat, the year massacres, in which estimates range but one-tenth to one-third of, European, of Eastern European Jewry was wiped out by the Cossacks. There was a fast day created for the 20th day of Sivan. Every year, Jews would fast to commemorate those murdered in those massacres. And I don't think it's coincidental that Ben-Gurion, who has that kind of, of sensitivity to drama and to history, picks that as the date when he's going to dedicate the, uh, the Nuclear Energy Commission, which he envisions as a deterrent for future Khmelnytskis. I think that I, that, I haven't seen anybody write about it, I haven't seen any quotes on it, but to me it's so glaring that, uh, that it has to be so. So let's, let's talk about what actually happened, what some of the steps were before we get into the ethical issues surrounding establishing nuclear weapons. In 1952, Ben Gurion meets with a woman named Munya Mador, Mardor. She had been the head of the underground that had brought Jews into what was then Palestine during the British Mandate period. They were the people who were smuggling in Jews at the time. And he wants her to be involved in bringing the scientists and and getting things together. And he approaches a chemist by the name of Ernest David Bergman to oversee the scientific aspects of it. When Bergman died, Shimon Perez said the following in his eulogy. Um, Bergman's scientific vision was attracted to Ben-Gurion's statesmanlike vision. The plowman met the sower, right, which is a biblical image of the time of the Messiah, where you plow and you plant and things grow. From the start, a visionary alliance was forged between them over science, defense, and politics, that marked some of the most fateful moves of the state of Israel. Actually, it's not the biblical image. The biblical image is the plowman meeting the harvester. Scratch that. Anyway, it doesn't matter for our purposes. Um, Ben-Gurion creates a division under the authority of Shimon Peres. The division for the nuclear program is called Emet. Emet meaning? 
truth. It stood for something else in Hebrew, but again, this is Ben Gurion's way of doing things. The, uh, he loves that kind of that kind of symbolism. So, which, by the way, again, the Aramins division being Raphael, right? What is Raphael? It's a it's a force of healing, right? Rafuah is healing. Raphael is an angel who's responsible for healing. So that's the way he views the weapons program. The, uh, in 1956, this is a key moment. In 56, right? What happens in 56? The Suez, right? This, this uh, Israel, France, and the United Kingdom embark on this operation to conquer the Suez Canal. Israel and France become allies. Israel agrees to launch their offensive on behalf of France in exchange for a promise from France guaranteeing a nuclear reactor and the uranium they need for it. So the French are the ones who actually provide the, uh, the reactor and the uranium at the start. What's in it for the French? Well, first of all, help in the Suez, um, but also a man by the name of Abel Thomas was the top aide to the French prime minister at the time. Thomas's brother was a lieutenant in the French resistance during the war, and he had been captured, deported to Buchenwald, and killed there. So he has his own reason um, to, to defend the state of Israel, his own investment in this, uh, in this regard, seeing them as victims of the Holocaust that had killed his brother. So the French provide the, the reactor, the French provide the uranium. Um, however, what you still need is heavy water. Right? If you know anything about, at all about, about uh, the, way, the way that the nuclear reaction works, you need heavy water because you need to slow down the neutrons so that they'll react with the uranium. So the heavy water is a principal piece of it, and the French don't have it or aren't able to supply it for some reason. So the Israelis get it from Norway. Norway supplies the heavy water. Why in the world does Norway uh, supply it? So it's often assumed that it's, that it's uh, a, a measure of guilt for their deportation of the Jews during World War II. Others suggest that there were commercial compensations involved or they, were, they wanted there to be a, a break of the American and British monopoly on nuclear weapons and they saw it as a good thing for the Israelis to have it. All sorts of different explanations. The funny thing becomes when you get into the American policy on all of this because the Americans are really being sort of shut out. Right? The French are providing one thing, the Norwegians are providing another thing. So, the, uh, what's going on on the U.S. side of things? Well, in 1958, um, the uh, personnel from the CIA contact Bergman, the chemist, and ask for a report on Israel's nuclear activities. Bergman doesn't respond. I don't know what you're talking about. There's no reactor. I don't, I don't know what you mean. However, Eisenhower knows. The fellow by the name of Arthur Lundahl, who, uh, who works in the CIA's Photographic Intelligence Center, and he shows Eisenhower aerial photographs of Dimona, where the main reactor is. And Eisenhower does not respond. Doesn't say, give me more photographs. Doesn't say, do something about it. And as Lundahl himself would say later on, I was left with a feeling that Eisenhower wanted Israel to acquire nuclear weapons. Eisenhower is okay with it. That works until 1960. In 1960, there's an American nuclear scientist named Henry Jacob Gomberg who visits an Israeli reactor, not in Dimona, but in Nachal Sorek. That reactor came from the Americans. Eisenhower had a program of, uh, it was called something like Seeds of Peace, to try to create nuclear reactors that would be for peaceful purposes. And he provided the reactor in Nachal Sarik, which was just a, a research facility. So, um, so after his visit, he says, I think that in Dimona, the Israelis are actually pursuing uh, a nuclear program that will lead to, to weapons development. And the CIA writes up a report for Eisenhower, and at that point, pressure starts to build on Ben-Gurion, to actually do something, uh, to, to tell the Americans something. Ben-Gurion presents in December of 1960, he makes a statement to the Knesset. He says, we are presently engaged in building a research reactor with a 24,000 thermal kilowatt output to serve the purposes of industry, agriculture, medicine, and science. So he survives Eisenhower's term. But then comes Kennedy. 
And Kennedy had made a big deal about establishing nuclear nonproliferation. Right? He doesn't want nuclear weapons to, to spread. And but Kennedy is not happy. Oh, it was Adams for Peace was the program that Eisenhower had. So Kennedy is not happy about the Israeli program. And he starts sending almost weekly messages to the Israelis that he wants information, he wants the ability to, to visit the facility. He sends two American scientists in, uh, in May of 1961 to, uh, to visit the facility. And after the visit, they report back that although the Demona reactor could produce enough plutonium for nuclear weapons, there's no evidence that the Israelis are actually trying to do this. So um, the whole story behind the visit, the visit goes on on Shabbos, and they, there are no people around, and the, there's a scientist who lectures and lectures and lectures so that there's no time left to see the facility. It's a, it's, the whole thing is, uh, is, is set up. Well, in exchange for allowing the visit, Ben-Gurion gets a face-to-face meeting with, uh, with Kennedy, which helps a great deal, because Ben-Gurion, by then, is sort of the elder, not sort of, he is, the elder statesman, um, and he has a certain gravitas to him, which you can see when you watch footage of Ben-Gurion speaking, he has that to him, and Kennedy is very young. And Ben-Gurion makes a really good impression on, uh, on Kennedy at the meeting. So that Kennedy doesn't do anything when Ben-Gurion says to him the following. Our main, for the time being, and only purpose is to dedicate it to peaceful purposes. After three or four years, Israel might want to develop a pilot plant for plutonium separation, which is needed for atomic power. There is no intention to develop weapons capacity now. That's what he says to him. Clearly leaving the door open so that later on no one can say, I didn't warn you. Yeah, there was the possibility. They, um, well, this goes back and forth in 1962 through the Cuban Missile Crisis into, into 1963. And, ben, and at that point in 63, Kennedy writes to Ben Gurion, American commitment and support will be seriously jeopardized in public opinion and in the West if it should be thought that this government was unable to obtain reliable information on a subject as vital to peace as Israel's efforts in the nuclear field. That's May 18, 1963. The, uh, in, uh, in June of 63, Kennedy says that if we can't get inspections and, and the conditions that we want for those inspections, it's going to jeopardize the American government's commitment to and support of Israel. That memo never reaches Ben-Gurion. He resigns from office that day. And there are historians who believe that that was actually what triggered it. He believed that if he resigns and a new government takes over, that will provide the delay necessary to get everything up to speed so that they can't be stopped if there's an inspection afterwards. In other words, once, it's, once that happens, it'll be, uh, it'll be too late. His successor is Levi Eshkol, and sure enough, it delays the American visits through the summer of 1963. And then, ultimately, of course, after that... Kennedy is assassinated, and there's a reset with Lyndon Johnson. And there were, there were issues back and forth, Levi Eshkol, Lyndon Johnson, and then with Golda Meir and Richard Nixon, and they all had their back and forths about it. But fundamentally, Israel ends up able to stall long enough that they're able to reach the point of their development that they have the bomb. Never had to use it. But they have it there, and it's, an, and it's, again, the textile plant, as Jimmy Carter was told when he overflew the site. They, um, but it's, um, it, it's a means of, it's always been a means of fulfilling what Ben-Gurion wanted in the first place, which was a deterrent. We don't want to see the Arabs do what the Germans tried to do in the, uh, in the 30s and 40s. So... What this involves is a commitment to a military path and a military identity. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that something that Jews ought to do? This is going to go back a little bit to the discussions that we had a few years ago when we had a mini-series on war, Judaism and war. So some of what we see here is going to revisit that. What I want to do is first ask that question. How do we feel about war in general? And then shift to ask the question of nuclear war and nuclear weapons specifically with the following questions that I want to get to. Um, 
How many enemies should we kill to defend a Jewish state? In other words, if somebody says to you, in order for there to be a Jewish state, you are going to have to annihilate 1 million people, 22 million people, whatever it is. At what point do you say, if ever, it's not worth it? Let's not have a Jewish state. Let's just live in exile among the nations. Is there a point where you say the cost is too high? That's one question. I'm not looking for answers right now. These are just the questions I want to get to. Second question. You know that when you're dealing with nuclear war, certainly until maybe the last 10 years, the assumption was, maybe the last 15 years, the assumption was that in nuclear war, everybody loses. Because when you fire your weapons, they're going to fire their weapons. There's always going to be some ally who who has nuclear capability who's going to say, well, if you do this, then we're going to do that, and everybody's dead. So the, uh, the question then you have to ask is, we have a basic principle in Judaism, which we're going to talk about, of somebody comes to kill you, you get up early and kill them first. But do you do that if you're not going to survive also? Is there still the same justification if no one is going to survive? And then finally the question, what about the inevitable civilian deaths? Meaning, not everybody you kill in nuclear war is somebody who wanted to nuke you. So how do you, you know, how do you deal with this? More so in a nuclear war, I think it's safe to say, than any other type of war. You're right. Anytime you're bombing a population, you know that there are going to be people there who weren't part of the offensive. Um, but in nuclear war, you're, you're taking that and ex- expanding that exponentially. So the, and certainly the nuclear weapons that they had back in the day. Um, you know, today, with discussions about conventional weapons and the ability to limit them, that may be a different story. But, uh, but certainly, in, uh, certainly in, in their eyes, nuclear war was a war of mutual annihilation. You're, you're killing an awful lot of people who were not involved. So let's go back to the basic question. Commitment to a military stance. So the idea of defensive war... Certainly approved of in Judaism. If you take a look at source number five, that's actually the line I just quoted for you. Right? Someone comes to kill you, you rise early to, uh, to kill them. In source number six, I brought you a quote from an essay by Rabbi Michael Broyd, Memory University. The, uh, I'm not going to read the title out loud, it's a very long title. But he says, Battlefield ethics based on the pursuer model, meaning based on the model of they were trying to kill me, so I'm going to rise first are simply a generic application of the general field of Jewish ethics relating to stopping one who is an evildoer from killing an innocent person. In other words, the rules of war, of a defensive war, are no different from what you do if someone is pointing a gun at you. It's just that it involves more people. But from his perspective, just like if someone is pointing a gun at me, right, and, you know, of course, that calls to mind two days ago and the, uh, and, and the fellow there... But the um, but if I if I know it's a gun and I know he wants to fire it at me, then I am justified in defending myself. So so too if the country over there says they want to eliminate me and they've masked their weapons and they're pointing them at me and they've given every indication that they plan to fire, so I'm entitled to defend myself. That's one way to to look at it. However, there's another way. To, uh, to look at it, there's another level to it, which is, as a war of self-defense, wars have their own rules. It's not the same as an individual who is defending himself. Take a look, please, at source number seven. He, Maimonides there is talking about a category of war that's called in Hebrew, Melchemet Mitzvah. I translate that as a commanded war, as opposed to Melchemet Harishut, which is a discretionary war, a war that you choose to enter into, but God would not command you to engage in it. So he says, what is a commanded war? What is it that we are commanded to pursue war? So he says, the wars against the seven Canaanite nations and with Amalek that we mentioned in the beginning, and the aid of Israel from an enemy who attacks them. In other words, he views it as a war phenomenon separate from self-defense generically. What's the difference ethically? between pursuing an action just to defend yourself against an individual and a war 
which is against a population that has come to harm you. What's the difference between the two? Sorry? Okay. But what's the difference in terms of the, the types of things you can do? Janice, you were going to say? Or? I was going to say just the numbers. A one on against four. Someone's going to get ahead of you and you intercede. And of course, that's self defense. But in this other book, then you're talking about the numbers of casualties. True. But I'm asking ethically, how do you conduct yourself differently? The concept is still the same, really. It's, it's defense, right? You could make that argument. I would actually argue that there is a difference. What's the ethical difference between defending myself from a mugger and going to war against somebody who has threatened to destroy my nation? Yeah, Moshe. Civilians. Civilians, exactly. How far you go. Civilians, property, and so on. Right? Meaning, if somebody is, you know, if somebody on the street is aiming a gun at me, so my response legitimately might be, if I have the means and the presence of mind, to find a way to disarm him that's going to cause minimum damage. I'm certainly not licensed to attack anybody else. I can't go after his family. I can't destroy his property. I need, it's a very localized situation, I need to do something to save myself from him. If I have to kill him, I have to kill him. But, that's all, but that's, that's all it is. And when he is, in fact, under control, then my license ends. I can't go up to him afterwards and do anything to him. It's over. He's under arrest. It's over. In a war situation, you can't fight wars that way. If a nation says that they want to attack me, and they say, we have the weapons, and they're pointed at you, and we intend to use them... Right? Leave aside, you know, those who use such claims, you know, I think Saddam Hussein with his constant threats. They, um, but if someone gives every indication he's trying to attack and it's a nation, then I'm justified in defending myself knowing that there will be civilians who will die on the other side because that's what happens when you wage war. I may have an imperative to try to minimize it, but I know when I go to war against them, it's going to happen and it's accepted. Property is going to be destroyed and that's accepted. People are going to be taken captive. That's the way it works. The, um, and in terms of myself, I put myself at risk in going to war. Right? That's, that's also part of the calculation. So the ethics are different when you do that. So there's are two different models here. Ruham, I just ask you to hold on with it because I want to, I want to get to this, to this point. That these are two different models. The, the model of personal self-defense and the model of this is a war actually lead us to different conclusions. But fundamentally, and this is the key point, when you move from self-defense to war, when you go away from Rabbi Broid's model in number six, where he says, hey, it's all just self-defense, and you move to the model in number seven of this is actually war, then you get in Judaism a great ambivalence. Meaning Jewish ethics are not ambivalent by and large regarding defending yourself from harm. It's enthusiastic. Do it. But when it comes to war, you see a great ambivalence. If you take a look at source number eight, this is a verse that is very powerful in its push for war against the Canaanites. You shall not make a covenant with them or their gods. They shall not live in your land, lest they incite you to sin against me. For you, sorry, for you, it should say, will serve their gods, for they will be a stumbling block for you very clear in its statement of give them no quarter at all. And we look at our great leaders who were warriors. Moses served as a general in wars against the Amorite nations. Joshua certainly so. King David right? The prophetess Devorah mocked Barak because he wouldn't go to war. They, uh, on the other hand we see some strong discomfort with military pursuits. Take a look at source number 9. Also from Exodus, in this case chapter 20. When you make an altar of stones for me, God says, do not build it of hewn stone. Don't use stones that you've cut with metal, with iron specifically in context. You have raised your sword upon it and desecrated it. What's the message? Sorry? 
No. The, I mean, you're right. But the, peace, no the, temple, the, peaceful, the, the temple is a place for peace. Bringing your weapon to bear on the altar is something that doesn't fit the relationship between the human being and God. And I gave you another example in number 10. King David approaches God and says, I want to build a temple to you. And God says, it's not for you to do it. Your son Solomon is going to do it. And there are various biblical passages where this is discussed in terms of the uh, you know, why David isn't able to build it. And in one, you get what you see here in number 10, this verse from Debrayamim from Chronicles. And the word of God came to me. You have spilled much blood. You have made great wars. You shall not build a house in my name, for you have spilled much blood upon the ground before me. This is not a punishment to David. He wasn't wrong in the wars that he waged. There is never a time when David goes to war against an enemy and we are told that God didn't want him to do so. It's not a punishment, it's a consequence. You engage in war, you can't also build the temple. The relationship with God is uncomfortable with the uh, with, with this uh, pursuit of, uh, of bloodshed. Now, there's a lot more to talk about David's inability to build the temple and why and so forth. It's not really a discussion right now. But we have within Judaism a real discomfort with um, pursuing a, a military path. And as a result, and this is what we discussed in our miniseries a few years ago, the, um, you see many rules presented in the Torah to try to minimize what happens in war in terms of what war does to those who fight it. There's a concept we talked about back then, inverted morality. Right? Quite a few people here were there then. I remember. The um, inverted morality is a great phrase. What it means is that the normal morality that we require in society, that we try to teach our children at the youngest age, is you don't take things from people. You treat people in a nice way. You go out of your way to help people, right? That's normal morality. That's what we expect of our of our children as they grow up, and that's what we expect within our our society, right? I hope that's true. I'm not calling for challenges on this one. The um, the war requires the opposite, right? War requires that the soldier specifically destroy destroy lives destroy property. And it's true that we want our soldiers to be moral when they do it, and that's what we're going to talk about here. But fundamentally, it inverts morality. What is most moral for the soldier is terrible for the rest of society. And what is moral in the rest of society is counterproductive in a soldier. So what you find is a set of rules biblically that are meant to prevent the, uh, the, this inverted morality from holding sway. So, for example, if you take a look at, uh, at source number 11, passage from, from Deuteronomy. When you go to war against your enemy, guard yourself against every bad thing. What does that mean? When a man among you is impure, he shall leave the camp. He shall not enter the midst of the camp. Before evening he shall bathe in water, and at sunset he shall enter the midst of the camp, and you shall have a place outside the camp. Go there, outside. If you are impure, impurity being associated often with death, but also with other, other things which, um, which are beyond the scope of, uh, of what we're going to talk about right now. But the point is, keep that which is impure outside of your camp. It's a way to draw a line and say, we're still responsible for ritual standards. And then you get something which seems very mundane, but it's not. And you shall have a peg among your weapons. When you sit outside, you will dig with it, sit, and cover your waist. For Hashem, your God, travels in the midst of your camp to save you and to put your enemy before you, and your camp shall be holy. Nothing which should be covered will be seen, lest he, God, leave you. What is this talking about? Dignity. Dignity. It's talking about not seeing yourself as an animal. Right? You are not an animal. You're still a human being. And, and insisting that that be preserved. So if you take a look at number 12, I'm going a little quicker here. The, um, I, and 
Yeah, I'm going a little quicker here. Um, take a look at number 12. Comment to Rabbi Samson Rachel Hirsch on that, on that passage. He wrote, Also, when you leave the normal boundaries of family and civil life, and you're in a military camp arranged against your enemies, then even though you are in a military camp, where the ethical reins are easily loosened and the actual goal of war is an unrestrained coarseness, then, too, guard yourself against every bad thing. Do not cease examining yourself with self-control and be on guard against, quote, every bad thing. You have to maintain spiritual standards. Yeah. That's why I think the, uh, the, the Armenians, when it's called Tzva Haganah, Right, it's by nature it's supposed to be defensive. It's not supposed to be a, uh, an, an, an offensive force. And we have a concept of Tawar Haneshek, purity of arms, and all sorts of rules that are meant to prevent the, uh, the, this kind of destruction of morality. There's more. I brought you sources here on the sheet that I'm not going to go through inside in the text just because of time, but you can take a look at it. Um, sources about not destroying trees. Sources about allowing those who are besieged a way out of the, uh, the city, giving them an escape route. But I jumped to source number 17, which is a fascinating line. Rabbi Maurice Lamb. You may be familiar with him. What did he write? Jewish Way in Death and Mourning, right? Jewish Way in Death and Mourning. He also wrote a Jewish Way in Love and Marriage. The, uh, I don't know why that's not as popular. The, um, but, uh, but he wrote both. He wrote another work called Consolation. So he wrote a very interesting essay. And you can see the date is 1962. It was on the issue of better dead than red, or better red than dead, depending on which side you took. Um, back in the 60s, the question was this. If you have a choice between being taken over by communism or going to nuclear war knowing that everybody's going to die, which one do you pursue? Better red than dead or better dead than red? So he makes a comment here that I, in, well, he makes a comment in the essay, um, but it's uh, I excerpted this in, uh, in 17. As Jewish tradition urged peace but was not pacifist, so it sanctioned military action, but was never militarist. We don't view either one as the ideal. We recognize that peace is important, but not to the point where we're going to say, I'm pacifist and I'm never going to war. We recognize that war is important, but not to the point where that becomes its own end and becomes our, our goal. Yeah. Sure, many have heard this expression. You want peace, prepare for war. Yep, very much so. Very much so. Right, everyone heard Ian. You want peace, prepare for war. And that's really what Ben Gurion is trying to do. So now we have to ask our questions about war, about war with nuclear weapons specifically. You know, the, uh, Ben Gurion's point regarding those who would destroy the state is well taken. But how many people are you willing, are you willing to kill? And what happens if it's going to be fatal for everybody? Right? Better dead than what? Than Arab? Is that, is, is that, a, uh, is that a model? You know, what about the collateral damage? Those are the questions we need to address. So I'm looking at the clock and realizing that this is going to spill into next week, which I apologize for. The last few miniseries, I've managed to avoid that, but um, this one not. But we're going to go until the, until the limit, and then the rest will just continue with next week. How many enemies should we kill to defend the Jewish state? Is there a maximum after which we concede that, you know what? Having a state is impossible. You just can't do it. Go back to a vision in which we live as exiles, or maybe we have colonies that live in the land, but under somebody else's control. Is there a maximum, is my question. Well, yeah. Okay. But we do have a history of knowing what happens when we're in a small group in somebody else's life. Ah, so you have to recognize that having a state has practical value. It's not only about the ideology of, look, we have our own state and we can run it and we can do our mitzvot and all of that. The reality is that exile hasn't been a fun place for Jews, right? We, you know, often it's a fatal place for Jews. So maybe you have to ask yourself that. Yeah, Rona. And then you start beginning at the beginning of, we could be dead anyway there. The, um, so this is certainly true. Having a Jewish state is not just a matter of ideology. 
So Rabbi Lamb, when he deals with this issue, points you to the book of Maccabees, in source number 18, when Judah does his, uh, his rebellion um, against the, the Greeks and their sympathizers. So look at what the text says about what Judah said to rouse the rest of the, of the group to rebellion. Unto whom Judah answered. The text that I actually drew on said Judas, but I just couldn't do it. They, um, so I, left, I, I made it Judah. Unto whom Judah answered. It is no hard matter for many to be shut up in the hands of a few. And with the God of heaven it is all one to deliver with a great multitude or a small company. For the victory of battle standeth not in the multitude of a host, but strength cometh from heaven. They come against us in much pride and iniquity to destroy us and our wives and, and children and to spoil us. But we fight for our lives and our laws. Wherefore the Lord himself will overthrow them before our face. And as for you, be ye not afraid of them. Meaning, after we get rid of the yees and, and all of that... We go to war to defend our ideology. Even if it's a pure matter of ideology, even if it's not a matter of, uh, of, of life and death that we have a, uh, a, a state, they, uh, we still go to war for our ideology, knowing that it means we're going to have to kill people. Now, the Talmud does present a very interesting, at least hypothetical, limit. Take a look at, uh, at source number 19 passage from the Talmud. The sage Samuel, different from the biblical prophet Samuel. Samuel said, a government which would kill up to one-sixth of the world would not be punished. Meaning that a sovereign power which goes to war and kills up to that amount, that's what, that's what countries do. They go to war, and this happens in the course of international conflict. However, I brought you in italics there, Tosvot, Tosvot is an anthology of comments to the Talmud, largely written in the 13th to the 14th centuries in Western Europe. Many of the comments come from grandchildren of Rashi. He says, that's talking about a discretionary war. In other words, the Talmud seems to say there's a limit. There's a cap of one-sixth. If your war would kill more than one-sixth of the world, you can't do it. That's what it sounds like from the Talmudic quote, which in Talmudic times you'd think, well, how could anybody ever kill that many people? Once you deal with nuclear weapons, it's very easy to envision how conflict could do that. And so you would say, well, there's a cap. One-sixth is your limit. However, Tosfot said that's only a discretionary war. Where it's a war of self-defense, it may not be so. There may be no limit, in fact. And so the answer may well be that from a Jewish perspective, for two reasons... First of all, for Rona's point, that having a state is not only a matter of ideology, but it can be a matter of survival. But also, from the standpoint that our ideology matters. There is such a thing as saying that in order to defend my Judaism, it's not as though I'm seeking a war with other people. They attacked me. So I will be willing to do whatever I need to do to defend my right to practice my Judaism. The argument can well be made that despite the toll, I wouldn't engage in a discretionary war. But a war of self-defense? Yes, that I could well do, even if it means a weapon of mass destruction. There's a lot more to say about this. Yeah. If I bring that to sort of the more current time, yes. and you can listen to what Iran said, Israel would be justified in calling so I, I think that it's a. Right. So this is a very interesting question. I mean, the, the the issue with Iran gets more complicated by the the question of effectiveness, meaning the the facilities are so scattered and so buried underground that you don't know, you know, you don't know that you're going to succeed. And in a nuclear war, you better succeed the first time. The, um, so that makes things a little bit more complicated on a practical level. But I think you're right. And part of this goes back to a question that I've really skipped, which is, how do you define self-defense? Meaning, when you have someone who is threatening you and has massive weapons and is pointing them at you, like we talked about in the beginning, does that constitute a self-defense situation, or do you have to wait for them to do something? And that's actually a very old debate, going back to the Talmud. Do you have to wait for them to have done something to you in order for it to constitute self-defense? 
the um, it's not a simple not a simple matter at all. So what I want to do first of all, I'm going to send out the link to the audio, and those who have been at the classes before know I am very happy to continue the conversation by email. Um, but then what I want to do is come back to these um, last couple of points next time. The issue of killing your attackers if we would die as well. What about the the, uh, the civilian deaths? I will also note for you. I look at the last page. I gave you a bibliography of places online where you can find the nuclear history as well as many articles from a Jewish perspective including the Red or Dead article as the top link there. Um, these are paint to retype but I sent it out as a PDF and I'm going to send it out with a follow up email today so you can just click on it and get the article that way. It's a lot easier than retyping things. Um, but uh, if I don't have you on the email list or you didn't sign in and register I'm going to stick around for a few minutes now. Please, uh, please make sure to see me Thank you very much.